Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking about the good enough life with our guest, Dr. Avram Alpert. Welcome to the show, Avi. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about your book and about the philosophies that informed it. But before we get into what makes a good enough life, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, So I am here in Hamburg, Germany. I'm a research fellow at a, a, a new place and it's called the New Institute. Um, And the idea here is to try to bring together people working in the humanities and social sciences to do projects that will have some kind of public impact, or at least that's the hope. Um, And that has been what I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, how can I take the training I have and and the time and the resources that I've had uh, and, and take the the learning and the knowledge that, that I, I gain from my colleagues uh, and bring it to as many people as are, as are interested. In. And so part of this, this Good Enough Life book was an attempt to write in a more accessible style. And, and that is the, the path I've been heading down while I still continue my academic research. My, my background is comparative literature, uh, but in a very broad sense, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in a bit of everything. Um, and uh, and this, this book is really a journey through through a lot of those things. And I'm trying out now some fiction. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, always looking for what is the, the kind of writing or the kind of speaking or the kind of programming that can really, you know, bring out some of the really fascinating and, and difficult questions that, that we ask in the humanities um, and, and develop them and uh, engage others with them. I like to ask guests what got them on their path. So if you can take us back to when you were in high school and you were looking forward, what things influenced choosing your college and what led you to comparative literature? So when I was in high school, um, when I was 15, Teen, uh, I took a trip with my mother. We went to Costa Rica, and uh, it was 1998 or 1999. And it was a very important moment for me. I grew up in a kind of somewhat standard suburban American life, and uh, this trip really, you know, almost in a cliche sense, you know, kind of opened my eyes, and I sort of see the world very differently, and I, I learned a lot. and uh, one of the things that really then was important for me was just ch- trying to kind of read and understand as much as I could. You know, I'd seen, a, I'd seen such a narrow slice of the world and I wanted to understand more and, and more of it. Um, so I kind of always thought I, I wanted to go to Brown University because I was not so invested or not so gifted at the scientific research and I understood you could go there and just kind of study whatever you wanted. and. Some days I still think maybe it would have been nice to go there, but I wound up at um, at Columbia in part, I think I had a very lucky experience um, during a tour where there was a lecture about Boccaccio, you know, they have a core curriculum and everyone seems so excited discussing uh, this, this medieval Italian text and um, it seemed like there was this real intellectual community and I think that's really what I was looking for then and, and always since is you know kind of where are the people who are really thinking and um, yearning for understanding the human condition together. University is not uh, actually like that often unfortunately and a lot of it is about um, finance and people finding jobs and uh, my undergraduate experience was, was good in some ways, disappointing in others. Uh, but I, it was really just that kind of broadness. And I, I studied anthropology as an undergraduate, and then comparative literature seemed to me a place where I could continue to be kind of broad and expansive and then try to grasp uh, as much as I could. So that's uh, more or less how I went up there. There are specific reasons. I wanted, I'm from Philadelphia, and so I kind of wanted to have an adult relationship to the city I grew up in. And it wasn't clear to me if I took an academic path when I would be back, but I was able to choose that for graduate school. And that happened to be a comparative literature program <laughs> that I got into. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that's not to say I'm not deep, deeply invested in, in the discipline or that I don't, that I don't care about it. Um, but that was also somewhat specific to my, to my life situation um, and, and the kinds of things that I understood comparative literature could offer because it was so broad and, and because it was so interested in 
you know, what goes into a literary text. When we think about a novel, it's not just a story or fiction. It's also, uh, it's also history. It's also character development. It's also the underlying economics or questions of identity. And then there's so much that kind of builds into a, a literary text that I thought this would be a, a place where I could continue to explore so many of the questions I had. And so you got your education in the States, and it sounds like you started your academic career in the States as well, and now you're abroad. Did you pack up your books to take with you? Was it painful to leave books behind? How did you manage that part? uh, It's a kind of constant. I mean, I move a lot, and um, it's pretty funny because my books have been, like the bulk of them actually been in a storage facility for many years because I kept moving. and I finally got them all back together. I finally kind of had them all on some bookshelves. And then this opportunity came here in Germany and it's very expensive to ship books. So I think I sent about 30 of them along. And of course, now that I'm here, I think I don't need any of the ones that I sent and I miss the ones I don't have. Uh, but the library here is very good and, and they've been uh, very you know, helpful getting things. And so much is online these days. Um, so I'm getting used to kind of trying to get a system of uh, reading on the iPad or the, the screen or printing some articles here and there. Um, but it is, you know, I, I, I think when I was a graduate student, it was always really about you know, having everything around me and having like the exact setup I wanted and having as much time as I needed to write. And um, I remember talking to someone who had children and they, you know, they said to me, I got about between 5.30 a.m. And, and 6, 10 a.m. every day. That's my writing time. And it's not ideal and it's a bit of a mess. And that's just what they did. And I thought oh, it was a bit of a revelation. Like, of course, you don't need everything to, to be able to do. You know, there's going to be all sorts of complications and things that get in the way. That's what I've learned to, to adapt. Um, occasionally, it would be nice to kind of feel knowledge around me and books that I've kind of read and underlined around me. But, you know, there's some here and, uh, and then just sort of make do. You you tell us in the book in one section uh, about your mom and about sort of the almost itinerant path you've had at times. Um, how is how is that going now that you're abroad? So I, I uh, I've lived I've lived a few other countries over the, the years, um, and so a lot of it. So some internal moving and some external moving, and yeah, and you know the book I talk about sort of checking in with my. My mom wants a week and, and sort of saying, you know, I've got this idea now, I've got this plan to be a bit more settled. And um, you know, she always says, you know, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Um, so that's, it feels a bit that way. I mean, the, the position I have here now is for a couple of years um, and it's very comfortable and it's a very easy place to work. So it's, it's nice. I, I do keep, but there's always these wheels turning in my head, you know, how can I develop something slightly more stable, slightly more permanent? Um, you know, but in a lot of ways, also I'm lucky. My my impermanence is, is somewhat by choice, somewhat by just the kind of particular career path I've followed or, or wandered into. Um, it's not because of uh, exile or refugee status or, or something um, more dire. So, you know, it's it um, it's I'm I'm always kind of thinking about home and, and ways of kind of grounding myself and and then also kind of finding I guess as it were good enough homes uh, wherever I am. You've written several books, and according to the jacket copy, when you wrote The Good Enough Life, you were working at Princeton? Yes. Um, can you tell us about what inspired you to write The Good Enough Life? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of things. I mean, part of it was, I think, being at a university like Princeton where there is so much of this idea and the um, the president recently of the university, maybe a couple of years, maybe it's a year or so ago now, in an interview in the Atlantic, really said, you know, the idea of Princeton is this: that if you have, um, you put enough investment into what you know it calls human capital, um, you're going to reap these tremendous benefits. And so, yes, like a Princeton education is probably too expensive, and yes, there's probably too much privilege, and and yes, there's kind of like a lot of excess going on here. Um, but it's worth it because if we put all of this into some, we'll get a few great ones. We'll get a few, I think he says, you know, Sonia Sotomayor or um, I can't remember some more classical uh, 
Thomas Jefferson or someone, but someone who had gone to Princeton. And um, and for me, this theory is is uh, is wrong. I don't I don't see the world this way, and and I don't see it really functioning at Princeton or anywhere. And this is the idea essentially that there are some among us who have so much talent and so much excellence and so much capacity that if we invest everything we can in them, it will trickle down to the rest of us, and the rest of our lives will be better because they'll come up with inventions or systems of governance or or works of art or entrepreneurial or new business ideas or new technology, whatever it is, and, and you know, the rest of us will, will benefit from it. And it's not that this is entirely false. I mean, you can see the world this way, and then it makes a certain sense. Uh, on the other hand, you, know, you can look at the flip side of this, which is to say, when you do that, right, you create vast inequalities, you create disruptive technologies, you miss out on, on a lot of talent, you also create a world in which it starts to seem that if you're not one of these special people, you're not as respected, you're not as important, you don't feel like your voice matters as much. Um, and I care deeply, deeply about equality, material equality, social equality, kind of status equality, right, that we all kind of feel respected and, and honored and heard as much as we can in our worlds. And so I, I, part of this book is really responding to this idea that I think many of us have across the political spectrum that it really is about kind of finding, being, striving, competing uh, to be among the best. And in fact, I think we lose much more when we do that. We, we really lose the kind of things that, that make our lives really meaningful, the kind of trust in each other, social cohesion, um, the, the, the kinds of individual experiences and capacities and virtues, so much of what we do winds up getting um, made into metrics and defined, well, people are good at this and this is what we've deemed as necessary. Uh, and so we have to proceed in this way. And I think we just lose so much human energy, capacity, um, desire, potential virtue through, through these kinds of systems. And so the Good Enough Life really was a response to, to a place like, like Princeton, but of course not exclusively, uh, where life was becoming defined so narrowly, and where I think you know another part of this is the stress that that students feel, that teachers feel, that you know the professors feel, to to be constantly productive and constantly trying to you know compete and outdo each other, um, and it's not good for individuals. I mean, there's there's you know like people talk about this kind of crisis of perfectionism. Um, but it's also just not, not good for the kinds of things that you wind up making. And I think, you know, sometimes people will say to me, well, if we didn't do this kind of thing, though, then, you know, we wouldn't have um, the Internet or something like this. And this isn't true, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's true in, in some way of understanding the history. But where does the Internet come from? Well, it comes from public funding. It comes from people getting together and saying, you know, we value scientific research. It is true that, of course, part of that history is then particular people are, are given a lot of money to do particular kinds of, of research. Um, but you can imagine a world in which we recognize, actually, but we did build this together. Um, this was a thing where we, we got together, we, we thought about what do we need as a society. Um, it's okay to have talented people, of course. My point is not to deny this. So, of course, yes, if there are people who have particular talents, we can support them in various ways. They don't need to then become super wealthy or super famous. Um, they don't need to have some sort of special status among us. They can just kind of be contributors to the world, and then they can have some advantages from that, but not too much. Um, and then if we think about these things in those terms, we don't have what, what we have now. It's just the Internet's become probably the, one of not only the, the greatest gift that we have, but the greatest problem that we have. Uh, there's so many issues generated by this and, and by how it's controlled and how privatized it is um, and how much dissension uh, in a negative sense. I don't mean dissent in this kind of breaking away from, from tyranny. I mean, you know, dissent of tearing us apart. Um, and we might think about, you know, if, if this is a social research, if, if the resource, if this is a communal resource, that means that it, it has an um, obligation uh, to all of us and that it shouldn't be about kind of profiting, siphoning off, exploiting people's time or data, um, using energy without uh, thinking about what it means for, for ecology, uh, thinking about what it means for society. So this is a long, long way of uh, talking about, yes, you know, inventions do come about through a kind of greatness model, but there's always this kind of shared and cooperative thing. And if we emphasize that, 
without in any way restricting or denying talent, but we really kind of emphasize that there are many people with many capacities and our goal is to enrich all of us directly, not kind of backhandedly through, through uh, supporting great alone. Uh, we'll have a society that's actually better for all of us. Uh, and this is what the research shows again and again, equal societies have better health, better uh, mental well-being, better education, uh, better sense of trust and democracy and care, um, and this is what we can develop. It won't be perfect. It won't really ever be good enough, as I always say, but, but it should be good and it should be enough. When I was reading this and then um, I was considering where you were working when you were writing it and the job you had there, it said that you were in the writing department. I was thinking about students who would be coming to you and showing you their own writing, knowing that you're a published author, that you have studied so much literature um, and that you would likely be advising them on how to have their writing be good enough and not some perhaps very grand idea they had in their head. And I'm wondering, I know you can't and shouldn't give away any students' privacy, but did your good enough philosophy help them in their writing or did they feel more frustrated because they had gone to Princeton to be great? <laughs> Um, so I taught, I taught mostly uh, or exclusively at Princeton, I taught first year writing. So it's students who come and who are trying to, I mean, it's a required class and, and they're there to learn basics of college, right? How do you structure an argument? How do you uh, think about paragraph transitions? How do you do basic research? How do you understand what a field is? What a scholarly resource is? Um, so I was teaching, you know, at a pretty straightforward level, um, and very rarely did I did I read students kind of writing outside of class. It was really kind of focused on this, um, and so it was more for me about creating a kind of space because it's such a high pressure place. Um, as best I could within the limits of you know fulfilling the obligations of my duties as an instructor, was to try to keep the classroom a bit more relaxed um, and try to not give them too much pressure or too much stress about the assignments, but to really encourage them to, you know, do what the best that they could do within the context of the, the time and the resources that they had. And that, to generally say that if they came to my office and say, you know, should I do this extra club? Um, should I, you know, go out for this extra thing? And it's, you know, really just encouraging them to take stock of their time and their lives and what's meaningful for them. Um, and not be too consequentialist in their thinking, just in the sense of, well, if I, if I don't do this and there's no way I'll become this thing that I want to be, or if I don't get an A on this paper, then there's no way I'm going to get into graduate school. And to really think about life as a much more holistic and, and complex thing. Um, so a lot of that would come more in, in office hours or in individual conversation than necessarily in the course. Um, where it really, you know, I mean, my, my job teaching them is, is to help them really understand this, this basic idea um, and to understand, again, that I, it's even less about trying to, to get them out of thinking the, the, the perfectionism because so much of this is them being confused, you know, finding difficult uh, understanding kind of what is this thing called scholarly writing, so much as to see that this was part of their building up their abilities as citizens, as thinkers, as people who could then enter into various arguments, see how they were structured, um, see where their strong points were, and really appreciate where people had, had said something meaningful and strong, and then think of themselves as adding to that conversation. Think of themselves as, you know, this is something I can now give, I can provide my own perspective based on my research, based on my own thinking, with some degree of humility, uh, uh, but also confidence. And so it was more, I'd say, general than it was specific to the, the writing they did in the class, so much as hopefully laying the seeds for some lessons for the future. In the acknowledgments of your book, you talk about some Brooklyn Public Library talks, and one in specific was something called the Night of Philosophy. And you said there were conversations that happened um, that really helped shape the book. How have your own conversations um, helped your own thinking towards the idea of a good enough life? I think so much of the book, you know, as much as it was responding to particular experiences or research I was doing or 
ways of understanding the world was really coming from all these kinds of moments, you know, feedback from students about what their lives were like, or feedback from friends about, you know, what their lives were like, or just, you know, sort of chatting with somebody at an event and them saying to me, you know, okay, um, here's my response. Here's how I understand what, what you mean by good enough. And here's why I don't think it's good enough yet as a concept and, you know, why you should develop it a bit more. Um, those kinds of things are, are very much part of the book. And I, I hope I try in the book to have a somewhat conversational tone. Um, one that's sort of saying here, again, I, I've thought about this. I have some confidence in, in the kinds of claims that I'm making, but they are hopefully presented with some degree of, of humility. And, you know, I, I think it's hard to do in writing sometimes because we are trying to make arguments, but also I try at moments to step back and say, you know, I don't have the perfect answer to this. And that's sort of the whole point about being good enough is that it isn't about any of us being perfect or um, ideal, have everything kind of thought out and thought through, but really all of us appreciating our, our imperfections. And the more I thought about it since writing the book, uh, I, I wish I'd almost made this point more that th this is such a good thing <laughs> that we are imperfect, that if this was a world in which, right, some of us could achieve perfection uh, and other of us didn't or couldn't, then we could justify all sorts of castes, all sorts of inequalities, all sorts of ways of structuring the world in which many were excluded. But the fact that everyone is imperfect, right? The fact that no matter how smart you are, there's something probably annoying about you or something you overlook or something you haven't thought through or don't understand. Um, these sorts of things show us our kind of shared humanity through our shared flaws. And that to the extent that we can make a good enough world, a world that is decent, caring, sufficient for everyone, it's because we work together, uh, not because a few of us kind of leapt ahead. And so the conversational style is meant to be part of that and incorporating kind of things that people have said to me or thought to me or, or uh, sent me through an email. Um, a lot of that is, is along those lines of let's keep thinking about this as something that, that we're discussing uh, and that isn't final. Our listeners are generally curious about how books get made and, and what goes into a book. You published with a scholarly press, with Princeton University Press, but you published also with the aim of it being accessible to readers. You could have gone down a deeply philosophical path with this and in a very insular conversation. Yes, it would have been in conversation, but mainly with other scholars who are familiar with and have already accessed the references that you're making, the specific texts that you're in conversation with, and instead you wanted to write towards a general audience. Can you talk about how you worked with Princeton Press to achieve that? Sure. Uh, this, so this started as, a, as an op-ed in the New York Times that one of the editors at the press read. And I should say the, the op-ed was, was because of a contest, and that's what, where I started the Brooklyn Public Library was. I saw there was a kind of philosophical op-ed contest. I just sent, I had this good enough life idea. I sent it in, um, you know, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't have access to the, to the Times otherwise. Uh, and then I wound up having access to Princeton because somebody read this. And I like that about the contest. It's a bit open uh, and, and makes space for new voices. On the other hand, of course, it's limited because it's a contest and there's a winner. And so, you know, there's probably other good ideas that were sent in that didn't get through. And I think that's always important to keep in mind. But because I was at Princeton, uh, one of the editors reached out to me and said, oh, you know, I read this piece and I'd like to talk to you about it. And um, I think they wanted it, you know, so it was, an, it was a kind of interesting process. They they wanted a bit more quickly. I was kind of going slowly with this. I mean, the whole mantra of good enough is to <laughs> kind of be slow and a bit studious about things. Um, and I still had this plan to not, not rush it too much. Uh, and then the pandemic happened and kind of supercharged the book a bit and I got a bit, it was a way for me to kind of channel a lot of my, my stress at the situation um, and then a kind of response to, we could talk more about this later, but response to some, you know, feelings that I had that the pandemic really um, had kind of shattered the greatness worldview and really showed us how much we depend as a society on, on so many people um, who, are, who are just decent and, and caring of each other. Uh, but, you know, the, the thought for me was that I wanted to write this as, as a trade book. And I talked with a kind of mentor about this. You know, there's a couple of options here. You can go to an agent um, and, and go that kind of route and try to find a larger publisher. And maybe you get a slightly larger advance. Maybe you don't. Maybe it sells more copies. Maybe it doesn't. There's no guarantee. Or, you know, if you write a trade book with a press 
like Princeton. I mean, some I think some university presses, Princeton, Chicago, Harvard, yeah, Columbia, um, uh, NYU, more and more. You know, like they they kind of pitch slightly toward this hybrid audience. So they're you know footnotes, high level peer review. Um, but written with an idea that they might reach more more people, and I think more and more presses are going this way for maybe unfortunate economic reasons. But I think it's a boon. I mean, for me, it really uh, it's nice that you know I could write a book that my earlier books are more academic, and I remember like a family member would would buy them, and they sort of say, you know, I tried, I got to page five. Um, so it was, it was nice to, to have a book where they said, oh, I, I read this, actually. I, you know, my, my cousin said, I, I read the whole book. I got cover to cover and I you know, didn't agree with everything, but I found it interesting and I, you know, was enjoying reading it. And um, So that was a really, you know, that's just a nice thing, I think, in terms of that conversation and, and having a, a broader one. Um, and I, I think presses are, you know, if, if uh, graduate students want to write in this way, I think it, it's, uh, presses are really open to it. I think a lot of graduate students are also leading here. You know, a lot of them are, are starting small magazines or, or blogs or contributing in various ways, writing book reviews. Um, a lot of energy is coming, coming from uh, a generation, you know, just one, one younger than mine in, in, in these ways. And I think that's, you know, that's great. So they, they may know much more than, than I do about this. But my, um, you know, my thought is that presses at this point, because of changes in the library system and kind of who's purchasing texts, uh, are interested in doing books that they think, you know, are not going to sell, probably, they're probably not going to be bestsellers, but, you know, can really reach a slightly broader audience um, and, and connect with more people. And I think that's, for me, Again, it comes from maybe an unfortunate economic uh, fact uh, about cuts to, to libraries and universities. But the idea that in response to that, we're trying to do things that are more accessible, more available, might reach more people, I think is a good thing. Um, and I'm enjoying doing this kind of research and writing that is open in that way. And to me, it does not sacrifice any rigor or lose any kind of scholarly nature. You know, it's still based on a fair amount of research. Um, it's just kind of directed towards towards a, a style and, and a kind of way of, of um, telling stories, being a bit more conversational, making sure to explain kind of concepts in a clear way. And you know, now when I do academic research, I'm always um, I'm always wishing people wrote this way. You kind of forget it's, it's it can get very difficult reading a lot of these texts. And you get used to it, I think, and then you, you step out of it for a minute. Um, you know, reading journalists or, you know, kind of light nonfiction, not light, but, you know, kind of popular nonfiction. Uh, and then you go back to one of these, like, dense theoretical texts. And it's like, oh, you know, I, <laughs> I understand. I do this myself. But it's sometimes it's um, it's a bit, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of a reader. Uh, so I, I, I like that openness and, and I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, at the same time, that of course, I respect and appreciate and learn so much from my colleagues who choose to, to write in different ways. For me, having this channel, I appreciate all the scholars who make strides to be accessible. There's people in fields I don't know anything about that I can have wonderful conversations with on the channel because of their intentionality of adding in layers of accessibility. Just because I have a PhD does not mean I can understand jargon in all the fields. And I feel a bit like uh, your relative who said, I read five pages. You know, sometimes I get sent a book by a press and it's great, but I should not interview the person about it because after about page five, I felt like a box of rocks. Just, I don't know what this person is saying anymore. And as we have a mind to sharing knowledge and being aware that people who pick up a book automatically have self-selected to want to know what's in it, how do we invite them into the conversation and respect that they want to be in it? We're not dumbing it down to be clear. We are actually, you know, when you're talking in the book so much about why do we have this greatness model and this exclusivity that's built into it, I think as scholars, we need to do that self-reflection as well. When I think I'm being really scholarly, am I actually being really exclusive? Because they don't necessarily mean the same thing. For sure. No, I appreciate what you're, what you're saying. Um, and, you know, I think I, 
in, in my comments, I, I do want to get across just that, you know, I do, I do understand that people pursue different tracks in the academic life, and some of those are going to be more technical, and, you know, I totally respect that. It's just that for me, and I think for people like you, and, and a lot of people, you know, here with me in, in Hamburg, um, the, the aims have slightly shifted, and it's all based, of course, like on often very difficult research, but it is nice, you know, I have in, in the group that I'm in here, it's on the human condition, but we have a couple of uh, physicists uh, whose work is extremely technical, uh, but what they're trying to do is is to write in a way that I can understand. And then you know, even though they're studying um, the nature of causation in the cosmos, but how you know uh, gravity produces fields that lead to you know construction, you know. But also so that I can understand, okay, but this is what we're really talking about here when we're talking about this together isn't just that phenomenon, but what that phenomenon means for how we understand the lives that we lead um, and then how these kinds of seemingly very technical, mathematical, difficult things really matter. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a skill, it's a talent, I think, that the, especially these, these physicists have that they can translate this incredibly difficult work into a language that someone like me who has no mathematical background to speak of can really understand uh, or begin to understand and appreciate, you know, it still takes a bit of work, but, but I, you know, it's, it's available to me if I'm willing to put in the work and I don't mean get a new PhD in astrophysics or something, uh, but, you know, just kind of engage and, and think through. So, you know, I, I, um, uh, with, without, again, as you were saying, there is a different, I think it's just a different way of understanding what scholarship is and that, Part of the part of what can in fact be hard and rigorous is taking these very um, thoughtful, thought out, worked through uh, ideas and putting them into a prose that is honest to the difficulty, but accessible to someone who hasn't had necessarily access to a particular kind of education or whose mind is really sharp and sophisticated and analytic, but in a different realm of life, which, which could be sports, which, which could be cooking, right? Which could be medicine, but maybe hasn't learned, you know, technical literary terms or scientific terms. Um, and for me, those are often some of the most kind of fascinating conversations because it, it becomes sometimes almost easier. You know, I can disagree with a colleague about a particular point about a philosophical matter, but we, we more or less speak the same language. And, you know, at the end of the day, we can have a drink and, and feel kind of, you know, nice that we, we had this kind of fun debate. Whereas in fact, that taking an idea, okay, I've got this idea of the good enough life. And then, you know, I go talk to a physicist about it uh, for whom the hierarchy of physics makes a lot of sense. You know, for all these people I'm talking to, it really is about this kind of genius who can kind of understand a certain element of reality. Uh, and to explain why I have difficulty with that model is much harder in some ways than to explain to someone who disagrees with me on, on a philosophical ground or a different reading of Aristotle or something like this. Um, so it's, for me, it's, yeah, it's exciting and, and, and interesting to try to do this work. You said a few minutes ago that the pandemic brought up a lot of feelings, especially writing this work during it, and that you might want to share more about that. Would you like to share more about that? Sure. And I, I said, I think, a little bit at the time, but, you know, it was just, um, it was so clear to me, and I think I certainly was not alone in this, that, right, we had built this world around an idea that there were certain kinds of skill sets that were just more valuable than others, right? If you had a certain kind of mathematical or scientific mind, or you could understand financial um, financial calculus in, in, in a particular way, or you you know could work with computers, um, you were in some sense like more valuable to a society. Um, but then, right when when all the things in society kind of shut down. What do we need? What well, we need nurses. We need people who are still going to kind of take the collect the, the garbage. People who are still going to deliver food and make food. And you know, these are people who are yeah, trash collectors. Actually, sometimes get paid decently depending on their unions. But yeah, you know, nurses too. But sometimes like people working, especially in delivery or restaurants, are, uh, are not paid well enough. Um, and certainly, you know, even people who are paid decently are not paid at the scale. Um, at which some of these other types of figures are. And it really just seemed clear, like, oh, okay, wait, now, now we've glimpsed this. Now we've glimpsed that, 
okay, people have different skill sets and capacities, but we need all of us, right? Everything that someone does in a society is meaningful. Um, and that's what makes it a society is that we come together to make these things work. And so I kind of, I, it was almost, I think I've, I've said in, in other interviews that the, the, um, this felt to me uh, at first, like an almost, um, like a, I felt exuberant, right? I was like, okay, we get it now. I was like, oh, I'm just going to write this through. We, we understand now it's all about good enoughness and everyone kind of working together. It's not about the great few. And it really felt that way, but then it kind of slipped. Um, that really sensibility that I, I, I think was just kind of lost. And all of a sudden it was about meme stocks and, you know, who was getting super wealthy through this process and, um, how people had made all this money on real estate uh, during the, the pandemic or these you know, sorts of things or companies that had grown exponentially, especially tech ones, because people were, were online more, um, you know, and, and occasionally someone like President Biden would say, well, we need to, you know, give, give workers a raise, not just praise, but that hasn't, you know, it happened in some senses, but, but not deeply. We didn't really think about democratic or cooperative restructuring of some of these companies or industries. Uh, we didn't think about making these things, you know, owned and, and um, held by the workers who labor through them and did all this difficult and often dangerous work. So it was a bit, um, you know, probably I was a bit naive or, or just maybe it was just a way of kind of processing the stress, thinking, well, at least something, something good will come through all this, this suffering. Uh, and maybe we'll still see, you know, I mean, the world is, is feels very precarious now. I, I don't know that I'm seeing so much goodness uh, reigning at the moment um, but so, so much as some concerns but um, at least we can always kind of point at this moment and at this understanding and, and I hope uh, uh, keep working through the insight that of course you know people have amazing talents and, and they should be able to pursue them but you know I, I always said one of the most amazing things for me would be to, to teach at Princeton and have a student say to me, you know, what I'd, what I'd like to do for my life is, you know, deliver the mail, um, be, a, be a clerk at a store, you know, that, that the life of the mind wasn't something that meant you then went on to some kind of prestigious or, or, or well-financed career, but it just meant you were a person who cared and you went to a school like uh, Princeton or wherever, uh, not because you thought it would make you wealthy or, or famous, but because you wanted to be around the people who really wanted to think deeply. And I'd love for that to extend more and more and for these to be public places and for us to have institutions that support, not exclusivity, but, but everyone to really engage with these kinds of issues. And again, that's what feeds into the writing. And that's what makes me think, no, I, I want to write in a way that is accessible and open um, because that's, that's, you know, the kind of world I want to see where no matter what kind of work you do, um, you can be engaged and you can be thinking. And, and um, I think a lot of people are, uh, but we don't always see this. And, and uh, that was, the, I guess, some of the, yeah, the hope that I, that I had and that I've, I've lost somewhat for now. The time period in which you were writing, and of course in which we live now, but especially when you were writing, was a time of political transition and a lot of uh, us and them thinking, which the greatness mentality exacerbates in, in many ways. Um, and you bring up the idea of engaged citizenship, something that you were just touching on a moment ago, but how important this is to you. Do you want to talk more about how ideas and your philosophies about engaged citizenship really matter to you, particularly in a time where the environment and people are all in more precarious positions than they seem to realize? Sure. Not, you know, in some ways it actually comes back to the, the first question, I think, or one of the earlier questions you asked me about kind of growing up and thinking about an intellectual life. And I remember once I started kind of leaving the place I'd grown up and reading more, but then, you know, still being in school um, with other uh, peers who hadn't had these experiences, weren't thinking about some of these same things or, or reading books outside of the curriculum. And, um, you know, and I'd try to talk to them about these things and there wouldn't be so much interest. But then, you know, you talk, if we'd talk about the, you know, Eagles, I grew up in Philadelphia, so, the, you know, like the football Eagles team on the weekend, and the level of insider analysis would be remarkable, right? And they talked about wind conditions or how one particular player was hurt or how this coach called these kinds of plays and right, this other one, you know, the defensive coordinator on the other team had been thinking in this way. I mean, it was remarkably detailed, right? And it was the kind of thing that 
um, show these really nimble, capable, broad, caring minds, uh, but that was only going to, to these sports events, um, or maybe their personal lives, you know, in ways maybe you don't talk about so much in high school, but right, it wasn't um, expanding into to the world, into politics, or, or into ideas about you know, what makes life meaningful, or gives us purpose. Uh, but the capacity was there, and it increasingly, you know, it always seemed to me that what, when we we talk about you know a life of the mind as some kind of exclusive thing or that appeals only to some people, it's simply false. Um, it's it's just that right we haven't kind of found ways of connecting up all of our interests uh, with these kinds of broader questions. Um, you know, and I remember like it, it comes out sometimes. These kind of moments. I remember when the Matrix came out. You know, every, everyone had an idea about free will all of a sudden. Everyone had an idea about the nature of reality all of a sudden. Of course, because they've always had it, right? We've always been thinking about these kind of profound questions, but we don't always verbalize them and then talk about them and think of them as things we, you know, discuss as friends, um, and as we might, you know, a sporting event. And I think if we were encouraged to, to do so, if we kind of built worlds and institutions that really kind of made it that, your task here is not to grow up and, and defeat a competitor in the marketplace. Your task is to grow up and be a citizen who cares about things. And so from day one, what we're doing in this school is learning how the world works and how you're a part of it and how you can contribute to it um, through your, not through your being miraculously special, but simply by being a citizen, simply by being someone who cares. Uh, I think we live in a, in a very different place. Um, so I, I, you know, retain some of those, um, some of those, those hopes. And, and again, I think that's why for me, this, this kind of writing or this kind of academic work can spark this. And, you know, a lot of people disagree with the book, but that's fine too. And it's nice when I receive an email that says, you know, I disagree about this point, or I'm not interested in this, or I think you misunderstand this particular model, um, because it's an opening to, to, to a conversation. Uh, you also, you were asking about this, this kind of us them way of thinking and you know us and them is a competitive way of thinking it's a way of thinking that sort of says uh, they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers and i don't want it to be my group i want it to be their group and how that group is defined often shifts but um i don't i'm not interested in a world that talks about us and them winners and losers right i'm interested in a world that really thinks about all of us coming together working together ensuring decency and, and sufficiency for everyone and i think it actually works better i think the fear is if you have an us and them mentality, what you're ultimately thinking is that there's only so much safety, security, uh, well-being in the world, and so I have to fight to get my part of it. Um, and I think that in so doing, we actually decrease the amount of well-being in the world, and we have enough. We have enough resources, we have enough time and energy and capacity to work together um and and lift up everybody and will our lives look exactly the same will you know people who have five homes still have five homes maybe not right but they'll have something i think much greater right which is like that knowing that they live in a world where really we all are working together where there isn't uh, the cracking or the um, tearing apart of the social fabric um where as you mentioned also right the ecology is in fine right we can really think about what kind of world is sustainable what kinds of things can we all have knowing the limits to our own planet, that our own planet is not endlessly great, that it is good enough, that it provides a remarkable amount of things. It's, it's um, quite a planet. It supports life, which you know probably exists somewhere else, but we haven't found it yet. Um, it's just a remarkable thing. And, and uh, when we try and tear it up and, and take part for ourselves and, and try and find what's best for ourselves, I think just think we lose so much, so much more. In Chapter three, you cite um, a well-known study, the Samaritan study, which was actually done at Princeton. And you share with us the questions and setup that the scholars who designed the study had and your own questions as you were reading it from your perspective. Can you share with listeners what that study is and what questions it raised for you? Sure. There's a, there's a study of the idea of the Good Samaritan. It's very popular, and you, you'll see it, I think, if you read kind of a Malcolm Gladwell book, it'll come up a lot, or these kind of writers. And it's a very interesting study, and, and what they basically did with some seminary students at Princeton Theological Seminary was to ask them to go give a lecture on the Good Samaritan, right, the passage um, in which there's a um, – sorry, it's not fresh in my mind, but there's, a, there's a, of course, a man who's um, – 
distressed and uh, several people in, in the biblical passage kind of ignore him except for a Samaritan who's a, a kind of religious outcast at the time goes and helps helps the person uh, and this idea that right we should be this good Samaritan, we shouldn't care that someone isn't um, important or we shouldn't think that um, only the best people will, will provide help to others, we should really think that uh, we all have the capacity to help each other and we all should um, at any time. And uh, they asked these seminary students to go give a lecture on, on this passage. And, it, you know, this kind of remarkable thing happens where they, they send these students uh, across campus to do that. And some of them, they tell, are in a hurry. And some of them, they don't tell them that they're in a hurry. Um, and then along the way, they pass someone who's in distress, who's, you know, coughing and, and uh, clearly needs some help. And... They find that more or less, right, it doesn't matter why someone is in seminary school. Uh, it doesn't matter if they say that they're there to help the poor. It doesn't matter if they say they're there to increase ethical well-being. If they're told that they're in a rush, they will go past that person who's in distress. And if they're not told they're in a rush, they're much more likely to, to stop. Um, and what I kind of found interesting in this study and what we, we don't really know about it is there's something, I can't remember the, the number now, but it's maybe 10 to 15 percent of people who are told that they're in a hurry do stop. Right? And how do we understand this slice? How do we understand this percentage? Because I think what the, the text implies is, is in the way it's often kind of cited in the scholarship is, you know, that no matter how ethical or how good we are, right, under conditions of stress, uh, we tend to lose our ethics. And that's true, and that's a good point. Um, and I think we should you know, think about that seriously, how decreasing stress and decreasing pressure and, and, and decreasing um, um, these kinds of anxieties may, may bring out what is, what is better, what is nobler in us. But also, right, how did we find this, this 10 to 15%? What, what made them kind of special or made them people who were able to stop? And one question I really have about the study is it presents this idea that across time, um, there are people who stop to help others and there are people who don't stop to help others. And so one of the theories that the authors, Darlene Batson, have about the original story is that maybe the Samaritan, because they're an outcast, has less to do. And so they're not in as much as a rush. And so they have a bit more time and that's why they, they help. Um, and so it creates this kind of idea that across time and space, you know, people, um, some people who are less pressured will help others and some people who have more pressure won't. You know, and, and it's not an unreasonable interpretation, but in the biblical text, right, this is a time of great inequality. Uh, this is a time uh, in which a lot of the, the writings, as you know, you read the scriptures, are, are deeply about the problem of wealth uh, and the problem of excess wealth. And if you look at the moment in which the study is happening at Princeton, right, it's this kind of post-war American uh, time when, yes, there's a more general kind of social democracy happening, but there's also increasing uh, concentrations of wealth. There's also some people who are kind of making in society, some people who are falling out. And if it's the case that the problem here isn't so much whether or not an individual has time pressure, but whether or not we as a society have created conditions in which people feel so stressed, feel so anxious. And if it's true, and I think it is, and I think this is really what I take from the study, that these kinds of pressures can push us off our ethical path, then we might need to think very seriously about the economic uh, social conditions in, in which this is happening, not about the individual capacity to overcome uh, that feeling, right? But in our social ability to make a world that makes it more likely, more possible. In pre-production, I'd like to ask guests what's on their minds and, and what they would like to talk about. And that's usually done through, through emails. And you let me know that you've been thinking a lot about difficult, small interactions that we have, little things like wondering if you were attentive enough to a lonely person at a party and about how that fits into the picture of what makes a good enough life. And it seems like a good topic to bring up now that we just talked about the Good Samaritan idea. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting for me because, because this book was written kind of somewhat under that pandemic pressure, it became in some ways slightly more political, especially the, the second chapter, first chapter of the book, but it's the, I mean, the, sorry, second um, kind of content-based chapter in which I'm talking about individual uh, thoughts about greatness and good enoughness. 
And um, I, I thought that was going to be a slightly more kind of philosophical chapter thinking about right, the nature of finitude and ordinary human life and the kind of romanticism of uh, experiencing ordinary everyday pleasures and these sorts of things. But it wound up being a lot more about kind of meritocracy and striving to be the best and kind of thinking about excellence as a personal virtue and, you know, how to think about excellence as a not zero sum uh, competition, but something we can all kind of cultivate and um, not thinking about, you know, competitively doing so. And so I was thinking more and more about these kinds of everyday interactions where, you know, and I think when, when you email, I've just come from a kind of social gathering here. And this was what was on my mind, right? Like, ah, there's like 40 people in the room and, you know, I saw this one friend of mine and, and I said like, hey, and then I saw someone else and I said, hi. And I was like, would that person think that my, my hi was less enthusiastic than my hey? And, you know, did I kind of negotiate the situation correctly? And then, you know, I kind of had to think about my own writing and my own thinking. I was like, oh no, but look, of course, right? We're going to somewhat randomly react in different ways to different people in different times. Um, we're not going to have the same amount of en energy for everyone. We're not going to do every social interaction correctly. Um, we don't have the, the time to kind of do what we, we want, do our own thing. We actually are often kind of constrained by, by these social encounters. And, and that's life, right? This is what it really means to be alive. You know, there's no situation in which you're totally free from social obligations. And if you are, you probably spend most of that time thinking about you know, how you miss people or you wonder what everyone else is up to, or you're more of a lonely person and, or, you know, you're a solitary person. And, and that's also fine. But, um, you know, for people like me who are very social, some of that also just means making mistakes all the time, <laughs> all the time kind of overreacting or underreacting or saying something a little bit awkward or, um, you know, doing a, a podcast and thinking, oh, my, I can't believe I said it that way or I wish I'd said that. And, really starting to appreciate that, you know, no matter how much you prepared, no matter how much we went back in post-production and edited this interview and rearranged it, uh, it's always going to have some flaws, some things that I kind of didn't say right and maybe even can't say right because it's just one slice of a life. Um, and, and we are just, that, you know, these, these uh, kind of wonderfully imperfect beings who, who kind of do our best to, to contribute something meaningful to the world. Um, and and so these quotidian moments, these little things where we do something a bit funny, we shouldn't feel bad about, right? If we've made a mistake, if we've offended somebody, of course, right? That's not good enough and that's something we should deal with. But these kind of small things that we start to worry about too much, uh, wish we'd said something a little bit better, or a little bit more clever, um, generally, right, don't actually help us to be more clever. They just make us a bit more anxious. Um, and so I, I was thinking some, ironically, as I'm saying this, though, this is kind of what I wish now were in the book a bit more. Um, and, and if I were to write it again, I, I probably would have put more of these kinds of anecdotes or small things, uh, thinking about time and relationships and, and our, our abilities to communicate perfectly or imperfectly. I do get some of that in there. Uh, and I'm happy with, with the book as it is, and I'm happy to have it be flawed, right? Because again, even if I put everything that I now think I wanted into, do this Podcast with me two years from now, but no, no, but now I wish I had something else, right? This is some of the nature of growth, and this is a good thing, again, because we keep learning, because we keep changing, because we keep seeing new things, it means that what we've done will, will look different and, and shift, I and mean, we can still be kind of happy or, or um, proud of what we've done, even as we start to see, of course, it was only ever going to be good enough. It couldn't have been perfect, it couldn't have captured everything, uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of the joy. That's We can look at it as a bit sadness, but we can also look at it as this pleasure of kind of having more to do and, and more things to discover and learn about. In the book, um, in chapter four, I believe it is, you say, living a good enough life in the midst of a society that is oriented towards greatness is extremely difficult, which I think your story there just encapsulated, that when we try to do good enough on the micro level, on the deeply personal and uh, spiritual level, it's only going to be good enough. And as you said, when it's not good enough, when we've hurt another or we've hurt ourselves, that's when we need to give it more attention. Um, you also give an example of a TED Talk. It's called Good and Bad Are Incomplete Stories We Tell Ourselves. Can you tell us why you included that, I, um, that TED Talk and what you hope listeners would take away from that idea that good and bad are incomplete stories that we tell ourselves. They're not the story. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the woman's name is Lanier. I can't remember. Yes, Heather um, Lanier. Which is, 
That's not in here. Great. Yeah. And uh, she tells this story about being pregnant and um, wanting to kind of have this super perfect baby, really falling into the whole greatness mantra and wanting her child to, uh, you know, so she's taking all the right kind of whatever prenatal yoga classes and vitamins and so on and so forth. And she finds out that her child has um, some kind of, um, um, I don't know, I don't know what the phrase is, like a genetic mutation that, that uh, is, means that they're going to have some sort of uh, different kind of cognitive abilities, the growth is going to be different, and they're not going to be like the majority of children, except that what they learn, of course, is that the majority of children, no one, right, is actually normal, right? Everyone has these kind of differences and, and uh, um, particularities of their ways of being. Uh, but what she really takes from this is that at first, she um, thinks, my God, this is really sad. This is really terrible. I, I can't believe that this perfect world that I thought I was going to be able to raise my child in isn't just going to be possible. Um, but then, right, she kind of starts to realize, actually, no, this is this is not bad. This isn't the end of the story. This this child of mine is going to have their own story and, and their own way of life and their own kind of meaning. And actually, it reveals something to her that's more profound than having a child who right, hits all the metrics and then does everything perfectly. It reveals something about the fact of what a human life is, right? That it's always a little unique and it's always a little bit different and it's always a little bit strange. Um, it's always a little bit difficult, but it also always has its own ways of finding joy and, and wonder and, and meaning. And so one of the things that I think we lose in our greatness-oriented vision of the world when it's really about right, the excellent, the best, they're the, the ones who deserve the most, is that people who um, have uh, disabilities or different kinds of abilities um, wind up kind of falling out of that uh, metric, right? Because they don't, they can't meet the same standards that you create for society. That means you have to be able to do particular things in a particular way. And so stories like the one that Lanier tells really show us, um, again, one of the problems that we create is that we lose so much of what is joyous and, and wonderful and meaningful and special um, about all of us, right? And about the, the whole world that we live in, if we know how to look for it, if we don't try and, um, place our box of perfection on it, but we really appreciate what is what is there in front of us and, and how wonderful these ordinary moments can be, even as they're difficult, right? even as they're only good enough, they still can be good enough. They still can have this goodness and enoughness. So I thought that story was just uh, quite beautiful. And, and it does tie in nicely, I think, to what we were talking about earlier about this incompleteness, right? It's it's the, the things that we think may mean one thing or another, or that we you know wish we'd kind of done um, entirely or perfectly, right, are always, there's always some degree of life that isn't quite there. Uh, this is the nature of time. Right? There's always something that's going to kind of go on. And it's going to be something that we learn and there's going to be a new person that we meet or a new book we read or a new event in our life that's going to shift things. Um, and learning to kind of dwell with that incompleteness, learning to, to live with the fact um, that we are perpetually incomplete beings, that we are never going to find full fulfillment in an absolute sense means that we can start to look for these other kinds of fulfillment. It doesn't mean we've lost fulfillment, right? It means we can find other kinds of ways of understanding and appreciating the world, even as it's always kind of slipping a bit away from us. Um, we can appreciate what it does give us and what we, what we do have. I have so many more questions than we have time left for. There's just so much in this book. Um, so I think given that we're running short on time, what I'd like to ask you is what surprised you in writing this? Hmm. Um, I think a lot of things. Um, one was how difficult it wound up being. I, I had this very clear plan for this book. Uh, like I said, you know, I kind of thought, okay, we'll go through these kind of ordinary life moments, and then I'll talk about relationships, and then I'll talk about politics, and I'll talk about nature, uh, and where good enoughness kind of applies across this. And because, right, I was dealing, I thought like, oh, it's kind of clean, but actually really I'm, I'm writing about kind of everything, right? Sort of like all these elements of life that, that are sort of connected. And then how do you choose, right? How do you choose, well, do I emphasize this? Do I talk about this story or this thinker or this person? Um, and at some moment, of course, like it, it clicked that no, I can only, you know, this is only, again, this is a good enough book. This is what I, you know, I can write and what I have to write. It's not going to be that I find the best story to put here. There's no such thing as that, right? But there's going to be one that really explains and um, gets at 
the, the message or the idea that I want to get across. Um, that doesn't mean that anything I threw in there was then going to be good enough. It didn't mean I could just kind of talk about anything. Um, good enough is not to wash away our, our um, standards, uh, but it is to shift them a little bit and to appreciate the necessary imperfections of them. So kind of learning always again and again, I guess, that what I'm saying in the book is a lesson that I also have to learn for myself, and, um, and that has to go into the writing and, and into my uh, ways of being or interacting or talking about, you know, just going to the party recently. And so um, really stressing, I, I do think I get this across a bit in the book, that being good enough is difficult. It's not necessarily an easy thing. It's not easy to let go of that search or that dream of the kind of perfect moment or the perfect line. Um, and some things come along, right? Occasionally we do have these like really kind of brilliant things or nice things we say or moments of social interaction where we're really graceful. And that's great. It's not going to happen every time, uh, and that's fine, and, and, and that's kind of part of life. Um, so I think the surprise is just kind of always relearning that for myself as well. For me, the book is a great questioning of our devotion to extremes. In this case, the extreme of not just greatness, but elevating greatness to the greatest, and the extreme deprivation of the rest we're willing to sacrifice and tolerate in the name of elevating the greatest. Um, for you, was there unlearning? You mentioned a minute ago there was some questioning and reckoning with yourself that you did, but was there unlearning you had to do as you moved towards your idea of good enough? Sure, yeah. No, and, and I think we all, um, you know, any, anyone who is ambitious in, in any way and in any field, uh, whether it's, you know, yeah, whatever, you know, I talked to the chef here the other day who had all, you know, grand ambitions for being a chef at a particular Michelin restaurant. And, and you know, there's, there's fine, which is great if, if he has the, the talent and, and it's meaningful for him and he's able to pursue it in a way that doesn't become cutthroat, that doesn't damage himself or others, you know, by all means, um, this is a beautiful thing. But in, in any case, um, you know, for me as well, like I, especially, you know, you begin grad school and, and you're doing your PhD and you're thinking about an academic career and you see how few jobs there are um, and how, you know, so much, uh, so many talented people don't make it. And you wonder, like, how can I be one of the ones? Like, how can I be one of the ones who kind of gets over the hump and gets that great tenure track job somewhere or, or writes that book that wins the award or, or what have you? And, um, you know, if... I think the problem with thinking in these terms is that we then start to, even as we're friends with each other or value each other, uh, we start to think of each other as, as competitors or as people who, you know, we're constantly in, in um, uh, competition with. And so I, I really had to unlearn thinking about uh, the kind of writing I was doing as, as, or the kind of career path that I was following as one of defeating other people. Um, and I, it was more almost that I had to accept, I couldn't change the way that academia hires. I've written some things about how I think it could change, but I can't do it by will. And then the quote you read earlier about how it's hard to live a good enough life in a greatness-oriented world is really about that, right? That I can't change the whole system. And so I have to find ways of relating to it, even as I try to, to develop this. And the best thing that I found I could do was to shift uh, was to make this argument for shifting how we think about things, right? It was, was to put into words and to commit myself to sort of saying, I don't think everything should be about all of us striving to be the best all the time. I think we should come up with systems in which we can cooperate and work together and find um, talent and abilities and find ways of incorporating more people as opposed to proving our own excellence. But of course, you know, I still exist in a world where I have to compete. I, I still have to apply for fellowships. I, I still have to try to get things published. And there is only so much space and, and attention. Um, and that's, it's a difficulty. And it's, you know, it's something I don't have a great answer for. It's just something that I work through and something that I try to take, again, the lessons for myself as, as, as much as I can. Um, but that is always a bit, it's always a bit hard. Uh, and it's always something I'm, I'm always thinking and, and interested again. When we talk about making our humanistic ideas um, public, it doesn't just mean writing an accessible style. It also means what kinds of institutions can we create? What kinds of cooperative universities or what kinds of grad programs that don't sort of set students against each other can be generated or created? Um, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to do some while I'm, while I'm here um, at an institute that, that uh, you know, is hoping to do these, these kinds of things. Um, 
so that, that, yeah, again, we take these humanistic ideas, these insights into what it means to, to be human in, in some way, and we try to think about, well, what, what would it mean to make it easy for us to live that way? What would it mean to make it possible for us to live that way? Um, as opposed to sort of saying, well, you have to be the one who's so ethical and so special that you don't try to get the job. It doesn't really make sense, right? It has to be, okay, no, no, you being you, you being a human with your imperfections, um, is going to be able to do the kinds of things that you find ethical and right in the situation in which you find yourself. It might still be a little bit difficult, but it's not going to be more or less impossible. Um, so that's that's something I'm yeah always still kind of working through. And finally, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I think it really. I'm I'm so curious, kind of who listens, and and I'd be very happy to to hear from people. Um, you know, for for anyone who has ideas, I'd love to hear them. I mean, what I'm really interested in right now is actually what where we ended very nicely with. How do we make? Uh, how do if we agree about some of these points? If we're, we we agree about this idea that a world should exist in which, right, we are trying to cultivate and respect and develop. Uh, everyone's talents and everyone's abilities and then find ways of incorporating them and working cooperatively uh, to, to um, make a viable world in which right, maybe not everyone gets everything they want, but can make a decent life and can have some um, goodness within that life. Um, what are the kinds of institutions or ways of organizing things that we can do right now? Uh, Long term, you know, we can think about big changes, structural changes, but what are the kinds of maybe small institutions or cooperatives or ways of organizing that, that are, you know, kind of immediate and possible? Um, and I'd love to yeah, hear more about that. Um, but I'd also love to hear, yeah, I mean, anything that anyone, um, I, I kind of am also just open to the incompleteness, you know, like the fact that I don't know how, how someone might respond is always kind of exciting and interesting for me. So surprise is also good. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Avran Alpert and talking to us about the good enough life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.